Listening to another premier old-time radio program at Pedango.com, and also a proud member of the Blueberry community. Another Humphrey Carmardella production. To guard the victory, to keep the peace, the mission of your men in the AAF. In cooperation with the American Broadcasting Company, your Army Air Forces, from the air fronts beyond the battlefields, present the continuing story of America's men in the AAF. This program is an official military operation of the Army Air Forces and is brought to you for contact with our airmen overseas. Tonight, we take you to... The Marianas, to hear more news about the atomic bomb. Guam, to be a flight engineer, key man of a B-29 crew. Indian, to see how our boys live away from combat. New York, to hear a salute to an Army Air Force hero by Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. And as always, we bring you the all soldier orchestra and singing voices of the AAF. The AAF and all of us are sure we're on the verge of a great day. factors which brought us to the threshold of peace was the use of the atomic bomb. This week, the world viewed with mixed apprehension and hope the dawn of a new scientific era. The atomic bomb was not unleashed with any surge of elation or glory. In the words of President Truman, it was used in order to shorten the agony of war, to save the lives of thousands and thousands of young Americans. For an interview with the Army airmen who dropped the first atomic bomb on Japan, here is our AAF reporter in the Marianas. This is your AAF combat reporter, Technical Sergeant Harold Brown, speaking from somewhere in the Marianas. 
During the last few days, the entire world has been startled at the announcement of America's new atomic bomb. At our wire record microphone is Brigadier General Thomas F. Farrell of Albany, New York, who will give us a few facts concerning this new weapon. We also have three men from the crew of the Super Fortress that dropped the first bomb on Hiroshima. They are Colonel Paul W. Tibbetts of Miami, Florida, the aircraft commander. Captain Theodore J. Van Kirk of Northumberland, Pennsylvania, the navigator, and Major Thomas W. Farabee of Moxville, North Carolina, the bombardier. Our first question is directed to Brigadier General Thomas F. Farrell. Sir, how long has this bomb been in the experimental stage? The atomic fission bomb has been under development for over three years. In those three years, it was successfully completed, an effort which might have taken 30 years in peacetime. How large is it, or can you say? It has the equivalent effect of over 20,000 tons of TNT. How does its destructive power compare with an ordinary demolition bomb? It is entirely impracticable to compare this bomb with an ordinary demolition bomb. It would be like comparing elephants with fleas, only that comparison would be unfair to the elephants. Does it utilize atomic energy? It really uses atomic energy, which is the energy released when the atom is split. The process of splitting the atom is called atomic fission. Do you think Japan has any comparable weapon? We know definitely that Japan has no such weapon, nor any prospect of making such a weapon during the present war. How was your crew picked for this job, Colonel Tibbet? A long time ago, when I was privileged to form this unit for Army Air Forces, I was also permitted at the same time to select the key personnel by name. Major Farabee, Captain Van Kirk, and myself had flown together in Europe, and Captain Lewis, the co-pilot, was a guy that had been with me during the early experimental stages of B-29 flying. Did you know what you were carrying when you took off, sir? Uh, yes, I did know. Major Farabee, were you a little nervous? Uh, that is hard to say. I knew it was the most important mission that I'd ever been on. But I was sure each crew member would carry on his job. I wasn't aware of what we'd do that we were sent up there to do. Did you know that your B-29 would be outside of its range of concussion? Uh, no, I did not. But we'd figured to get the airplane out into a safe range, and we maneuvered to make the shot as small as we possibly could. Captain Von Kirk, did it shake the B-29 when it exploded? We saw two distinct jolts a short time after dropping the bomb. They felt like close first to flat. What could you see below after the detonation? I saw a very large white mushroom-shaped cloud which reached to our altitude. Hanging low over the target was a thick cloud of boiling black dust which covered the entire city with the exception of the dock area. Colonel Tibbet, have you seen any reconnaissance photos since the strike? Uh, yes, I have seen uh, some recent uh, post-strike photos. Well, in general, sir, what do they show? Well, in general, they show that the city of Hiroshima has taken a terrible beating. Well, can you tell us the 
well, more or less a personal guess on that, I would say that over half of the city is totally destroyed. Well, what kind of a reception did the crew receive upon your return to base? Well, everybody was most happy and most relieved that the first bomb of its type had been released, and uh, there was quite a lot of hilarity on the part of everyone concerned. Colonel Tibbett, the last question. Is it your plan to continue attacks with these new bombs? Well, plans are entirely up to strategic air forces, but whatever they plan or wherever they want the bombs delivered, we'll take them. Thank you, Colonel Tibbetts and Brigadier General Thomas F. Farrell in the Marianas. We return you now to New York. Even in the beginning, air power was an allied operation. In the early days of their cadet training, American flyers marched to a song borrowed from the British. Now at airfields in far-off places all over the world, flying men still cling to the nostalgic memory of Sixth Sense. Contributed much toward hastening the day of Japan's surrender 
are the flight engineers on our B-29. The flight engineer is a crewman respected by his mates as a doctor who can diagnose and remedy the mechanical ailments of their giant bomber. To meet a B-29 flight engineer and to learn his importance to the bomber team, Army Wire Recorder switches now to a super fortress returning to the Marianas from one of the last missions flown against Japan. Over. One of the most important men behind the scenes in the successful operation of a super fortress is the flight engineer. On this plane, he is Master Sergeant Bill Long of Reading, Pennsylvania. Sergeant Long, would you tell us something about your job? Well, my job, I I have to four-flight take care of pre-flighting the engines and the airplane to make sure that they're ready for that long mission. In flight, uh, my most important job is, I guess, to uh, keep a constant watch on the instruments and uh, make minor adjustments with the electrical switches and so forth that I have on my panel to keep the engines operating within their, their limits. Also, uh, I keep an accurate and constant check on fuel consumption so that at any, at any minute I can tell the, the pilot just exactly how much fuel we have used and how much we have left to return to the base. About how much uh, fuel, that is gasoline itself, does each engine consume on one of these missions against Japan? Well, each one of them consumes about about 1,300 gallons. Each engine is about 1,300 gallons for the entire flight. That makes a total of approximately 5,500 gallons for the average mission. That means a lot of A coupons for somebody on one mission. Multiply that by the amount of super ports that hit the Japanese homeland each week to get an idea where a lot of the gasoline is going. I believe uh, your type of job on this B-29 is the only airplane that makes a, a set specific job for a flight engineer insofar as having a panel of his own. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Also, uh, on takeoffs, I hear you calling out the... A takeoff speed, that is, insofar as the uh, uh, rate of miles per hour the plane is traveling down the runway. Uh, why is that? Well, that's to uh, inform the pilot and the rest of the crew uh, at what speed we are approaching the uh, takeoff run. In other words, to tell them that we're approaching the speed where we can leave the ground. And here in your particular booth here, your compartment, you can have a full view of all four engines, and you watch them constantly. Supposing uh, something went wrong with one of them right now or any time in flight, what would be your procedure then? Well, first thing I would do is notify the pilot so that he's aware of the situation. Then I would take whatever corrective action I could to remedy the situation, uh, making uh, adjustment with the compact switches or... Uh, Mixture controls, depending upon what the difficulty was. Uh, Sergeant Long, would you tell us approximately how many dials, instruments, switches, and so on that you have to watch and be constantly aware of? Well, I'd say there are about about 30, in, 30 indicators, and most of them are dual indicators since uh, each indicator uh, has the dial for two engines. And as for the switches, there are just about as many switches, if not a few more. Thank you very much, Flight Engineer. Master Sergeant Bill Long. We've been speaking to you from the flight deck of a B-29 on a return mission from the Japanese homeland.
life on an island air base can't exactly be compared to that of a modern American city. That's why our airmen spend their leisure hours attempting to make island living more comfortable. The inventive American mind and deft hands fashion useful devices from the scraps of war to better a rugged existence. On one of our islands in the Pacific is an example of such Yankee ingenuity in the form of a wind-powered mechanical laundry. Over. We set our wire recorder up today in the wind-power mechanical laundry on the main floor here at Tinian. The proprietor of this particular laundry is CSC James J. Blackie Mansuetti of Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Blackie, what outfit are you in? I'm from a certain service group with the 58th Bombardment Wing of the 20th Air Force. All right. Now that we have established the locale of your position here, tell us something about your wind-driven, wind-powered mechanical laundry. Well, just like an ordinary windmill, instead of pumping water, it just bounces the clothes up and down the barrel. What's the barrel? Where did you get it? That's an old uh, bong drum I got dump. And what, would you tell us something about the windmill itself? Well, it's just that it has about 12 props on it, just like an airplane. The wind's kind of strong out this way, and it, it turns the, wind, uh, the fan around. Which in turn, in turn, has a pleasure that uh, bounces the clothes up and down. Where did you get the drive shaft? That's an old piece of iron, iron rod I found or picked up around here. Uh, does this particular washing machine give you dishpan hands, PSC? <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. For the GI soup, I use this kind of stuff. Uh, how about the length of time it takes to wash clothes? About an hour and a half, providing you use hot water, which I use, heat it up with some wood with fire and so forth. And uh, how about the tattletale gray of the clothes themselves? Well, it's not as, not as good as the laundry back in the States, but it'll do for the boys out here. Could you tell us something about the horsepower of this particular washing machine? Well, that's about 20 revolutions per minute. And uh, when you get ready to drain all this water out that you've been using, just what type of drain do you use? All we, all we have to do is ditch in the ground and just throw it in. Just toss the barrel over. That's right. Just toss the barrel over. That's right. Just toss the barrel over. That's right. I'd like to have you listen to the actual mechanical sound of this wind power mechanical laundry. Thanks to you, PSC James J. Blanky Mansuetti, for telling us about your Wind Power Mechanical Laundry and its Operation. This is your area of combat reporters speaking to you all from Tinian in the Marianas and returning you to the United States. United we march to victory. United we shall keep the peace of the world. Tonight our Russian allies are sweeping through Manchuria to speed the day. And the jagged peaks are echoing the strains of a familiar battle song, the Red Cavalry March. Thank you. 
hero fell in our ranks. The Army Air Force's ace of aces, Major Richard Ira Bong. Age 24, from Poplar, Wisconsin, a town you probably never heard of till a P-38 lightning fighter blazed its name in white-hot lead across South Pacific skies. Pablo, Wisconsin, population 461, sent 64 of her sons to war. One of them was Richard Ira Bong, a stocky farm boy, who was first to crack Captain Eddie Rickenbacker's record of the last war. Dick Bong, a sandlot ball player who shot 40 enemy planes from the sky. Dick Bong, clear-eyed youngster with puffy red cheeks and turned-up nose who was to become the Army Air Force's ranking ace of World War II. Tonight, Dick Bong is no longer with us. He leads a great formation of other brave airmen into the infinite. Flyers who gave their lives so that the Army Air Forces might spread strong, protective wings around the world. Perhaps the person most fitted to pay tribute to his achievement in this war is the man who attained a similar position in World War I, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. Here with us tonight is Captain Eddie in person. In thinking of Major Richard Baum, I find it impossible to regard him in the narrow aspect of an individual. When I think of Dick as a friend who is no longer with us, he ceases to be just one man who died. Instead, he becomes every American whose road to war was a one-way street to the supreme sacrifice. And when I think of his mother, wife, and father, my heart goes out to them because, to me, they represent at this moment every American family that has helped to buy victory with the precious life of a father, husband, or son. You see, to me, Major Baum, like every American who has met his death in this war, is an example of the tragic and terrible price we must pay to maintain principles of human rights 
of greater value than life itself. We cannot mourn the death of one without mourning the death of all. Richard Baum, by virtue of his courage and skill as a flying fighter, attained a truly heroic stature that will remain an everlasting inspiration. But this gallant Army Air Force hero who wrote his name in the skies with blazing guns will also be remembered because he made his final contribution to aviation in the dangerous role of test pilot of an untried experimental plane, a deed that places him among the stout-hearted pioneers who gave their lives in man's conquest of sky and space. Thank you, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. On the brink of victory, humbly we bow our heads and raise our voices in a pilot hymn. Oh, 
so ends the 21st edition of the Fighting AAF, an official military operation of the Army Air Forces. Next week, over most of these stations, AAF teams operating at air bases around the world will again bring you fresh and first-hand news of our men in the AAF. This is the American Broadcasting Company. This is the American Broadcasting Company.